Man, you may be seated this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 8. Isn't it good news this morning as we gather in this place to know that Jesus has overcome for us and therefore we are more than overcomers through Christ who loves us and gave Himself for us. And that is the reality of every believer in this room. Even when we don't feel like it, even when life seems heavy and weighty, we have the great confidence and assurance today to know that we indeed will overcome because Jesus has overcome for us. Well, it is good for me to be back in the pulpit with you this morning. If you weren't here last week, I took the week off. Uh, Tyler Kelly stood in my place and did a fantastic job as he opened up the Word of God in Luke chapter 8 and just continued in our study of Luke. I had the great opportunity last week to basically just be a church member. I got to go to a life group with my wife. I got to sit in church with my family. I got the opportunity to be encouraged by the teaching of God's Word and the fellowship that happened in both both of those. And it's always good for me to have a week off uh, from time to time just to refresh a little bit, but also just to remind myself how thankful I am and how much I love what God has given me the grace to be able to do uh, by serving and leading our church, but also by getting to open up the Word of God with you every week. Uh, we are back in Luke. And so just to kind of give you a little background, if you're new with us, uh, some 30 weeks ago, 30 plus weeks ago, uh, we started in the book of Luke together. Uh, basically because we wanted to walk systematically through this gospel and have a healthy understanding of who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, what Jesus Himself said that we as His followers should be about and how we should live. Because at the heart of our church is very simple. We want people to know Jesus, follow Jesus, and become like Jesus. And that means that we want people to have a, a relationship, an intimate personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in Him. We want people to be on a journey of following Him and obedience and imitating Him in the way that they live their life because we believe by the time it's all said and done and as God has His way in us, we are going to be transformed, conformed to His image where we are going to become like Him. And that's what we cling to. That's what we hope and aspire to in our life as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I thought it very fitting for us to make sure that we have a healthy understanding of who the Bible says Jesus is because the reality is so many times when I talk with people, they have a very surface level understanding of Jesus, but often they will say that Jesus said things that he didn't say, or they'll misinterpret things or fail to understand really what the Christian life is all about. And so as disciples, I felt that it was important for us as a body just to work through this book together. Now, as we do that, one of the things that I think is so important for us in our spiritual lives is that if we truly want to see change, it does not come in big, drastic moments in our life, but it comes by steady, deliberate, persevering as God works inside of us. Now, here's what I mean by that. For any of us in the room who have had lasting change in our life, it didn't occur just in one drastic moment. For instance, if you are living the healthiest lifestyle that you've ever lived now, it didn't happen just because you went on a drastic crash diet and all of a sudden, just for six weeks, changed everything about yourself. While that might have had something to do with it, the reality of how you sustain that change was by persevering deliberately, changing the way that you see life, act and understand life, and it changed everything about the way that you live. 
Now, the reason I point that out is because so many times in our spiritual lives, we're just wanting one sermon or one week at a conference or one week at a camp or some event or thing to transpire in a way that we think it's going to ultimately change the trajectory of how we live our life. And while God might use those moments to get our attention or to speak something into us, lasting change is only going to come by the consistent deliberate surrender to the Spirit of God and faithfulness to the Word of God. And there's no other way around that. There's no other way by which lasting change is going to happen. And so let me just tell you what my heart is as a pastor. I don't sit there every week trying to to polish up some saying that maybe will stick in your mind as you leave this place. Why? Because anything that I say, regardless of how clever or cute or how well it rhymes or anything, is not going to be able to sustain you through the difficult times in life. Do you know what will be able to sustain you? A healthy diet and feeding on the Word of God. The only thing that's ultimately going to change you is not just some thing that you heard or some quip that you can tweet out. It's by pointing you back in the direction of those difficult moments in your life of saying, I know where truth is found. I know where hope is found. I know where life is found. It's found in the pages of the Word of God as it reveals Jesus Christ to us. And so every time that we gather in this place, my my goal is not to try to hit what are the the most trending topics out there on Twitter or try to hit whatever's new and cute and relevant in the world today. My hope is to say the Word of God is timeless and is relevant to any and all circumstances and situations we are in. And if we want to have a group of people who are shaped and changed, it will come after deliberate week in and week out proclamation of the truth of God's Word. Now that's important because sometimes we get in a book like Luke that's long and here we are wading ourselves through it and we're, we're at times we're going to find ourselves in the Word of God, dare I say, grinding through it, right? If you've ever read through the entirety of the Bible, what you're going to find is indeed you come across places where it feels like you're just grinding through it. Why? Because it's lists of names that you can't pronounce and a group of people that you don't even know where it is. Some of it doesn't even exist in that same name today as what it did in the Bible. And you're like, what on earth does this have to do with anything? But you trust that as you surrender yourself to it, that God is at work helping you understand the big picture of the redemptive story that He is writing from beginning to end, and you and I, by His grace, get to be a part of it. And so here's what I want to just spur you against. Trendy, shallow Christianity that just spins the speak to little things here and there in your life but root you down deep in the truth of God's abiding Word because it has the ability to grow you, shape you, and change you in all things. And in those deep, dark moments of your life, you're not going to count on some polished sentence that I gave you, but you will put yourselves in the pathway of the true abiding Word that's able to sustain you regardless of what you're walking through. So with that in mind, let's get back to the Gospel of Luke starting in verse 22. It says this, One day he and his disciples got into a boat and he told them, Let's go over, or let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Let's stop there for a moment. Luke does not always deal chronologically. 
And so if you study the Gospel of Luke and you compare it to other Gospels, you're going to find that sometimes Luke maybe seems to put things out of place. And it's because as Luke has researched and has uh, weighed out all of the testimony, the evidence that he has seen, he is writing to try to compel Theophilus as well as the rest of his writers or readers that indeed Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God. And so he's been doing that to us systematically by trying to relate to us that Jesus is one who has authority like no other man who's ever walked the face of the earth has ever had. He points out to the fact that Jesus is able to teach in a way that no one else who's ever walked the face of the earth has been able to teach. He's pointed out the fact that Jesus has been able to resist temptation in a way that no other man has been able to resist it. He's pointed out the fact that Jesus has the ability to heal and cure diseases, that He has the ability to bring people back to life, that He speaks and the demons and evil spirits have to listen to everything that He says. And so what He is relaying over and over and over over again is there has never been anyone quite like Jesus Christ. Now the reason he points that out to us is because as we have seen from the very beginning of this this gospel is that Jesus is no ordinary man, but he is indeed the God incarnate. He is the son of God who has taken on human form and come to dwell among us. And so when Luke writes, it's, it's chronological in some sense. I mean, he doesn't get the crucifixion ahead of the, the birth of Jesus. But as he is mapping out the life of Jesus, he's not so concerned about making sure he gets everything in order of the event that it happened. But at times he's going to speak categorically of trying to make sure he's driving home the point of what he's trying to get at. Now, the reason that I point that out is because Luke just loosely says here, one day he and his disciples. And so Luke is not giving us really the order of events. He's just saying, well, well, one day this happened. But if you go back and study the account of Mark, which is in Mark chapter 4, he is going to give us a more chronological order of things that have happened. And basically, this is happening after an extensive time of teaching in the life of Jesus. He has sat down with groups and groups and groups of disciples, and over and over again, he has spoken parable. Uh, uh, as we've talked before, we were taught as kids, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Basically, he's taken real life events that could happen that everybody would understand, but inside that, he's packing deep spiritual truth. And the reason that he says he does that is that for those who have spiritual ears and eyes and are able to understand, they get the deeper point of what's being said. But to those who aren't spiritually minded, they walk away saying, well, what was the point of that. And so Jesus was able to, in his masterful way of teaching, to take ordinary events that would have happened any day and said, but listen, this is how it pertains to the kingdom of God. Now, if you've ever been a public speaker, you know that speaking over and over and over again can be physically exhausting. Now, some of you say, well, I don't know how that is. All you do is stand up there and run your mouth. Well, let me just tell you, it takes a lot of calories to run this mouth, all right? It takes a lot of energy to, to get this thing going. And if you've ever preached or taught or been a part of lecturing for extended periods of time, you understand the physical toll that this can take on you. There have been weekends in my life where like in three days, I preach anywhere from five to seven times. And by the time that's over on a Sunday, I just go home and just want to collapse on my couch just from the exhaustion that it has. There have been times where I, I preached revivals during a week and then come back home and then preach two sermons on a Sunday and then maybe led something on a Sunday night. And all of a sudden, by the time you get in bed that night, you're just physically exhausted. And the reason that I point that out is we're seeing the clear humanity of Jesus being displayed in this moment. He has had time for the multitudes. He has been teaching them, but he is reaching a point where his emotional, mental tank has been 
been depleted. And Jesus sets an example for us how at times He would get away to find rest. Now some of you get that, right? Some of you understand that you just need a break. You just need to mentally be able just to kind of, we use the term veg out a little bit, just to get away and not to have to think about things and not have to deal with people. And I mean, he is emotionally spent because he has listened to the needs of the people while he has been teaching them. He's intellectually, mentally spent because here he has been for hours upon hours teaching building up the kingdom of God. He's physically spent because guess what? It takes energy to do that and all the crowds that were around him. And finally, he looks to his disciples and says, I need a break. Let's get in a boat. Let's go to the other side of the lake or the sea, which would be referenced the same place in multiple different accounts. Sometimes it's referred to as a lake. Sometimes it's referred to the Sea of Galilee. And he says, let's go to the other side. Now, there was a reason why Jesus wanted to go to the other side. It was twofold. Number one, I need a break. I need to rest. Secondly, there was a group of Gentiles over there that Jesus wanted to go serve and minister to. So he's getting a break. He's heading to the other side. We're going to pick up next week what he encountered when he was there. But basically, he gets on there and look at what it says. Verse 23, and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Now, again, I don't want to make too much of this because we get this being tired. But here's what I do want us to see that when Jesus took on full humanity, he indeed took on full humanity. When the Bible says that he identifies with us in every way that we are, yet was without sin, the Bible means just that. It means that Jesus got worn out. And so in those moments and seasons of your life when you're just physically and mentally, emotionally taxed and worn out, and you're like, I, I, no one understands what I'm going through because we always feel that way, don't we? Here's one person that understands what you're going through. You can pray and ask Jesus to help you in those times. You want to know why? He knows exactly what you're going through. One time, one of my boys was sick, and he had a stomach ache, and had just been not feeling well, vomiting, all of that stuff that goes on with children. And, and he was laying there, and you could just tell, he was, he was probably about three, four years old. And his little body was just depleted. It was tired. So Renee and I had been caring for him. He was laying in bed, and I was bringing him some stuff to drink. And he just said, Dad, I don't feel good. I said, I know, son. And I said, you mind if I pray with you? And he's like, yeah, because what kid's going to tell his dad no when, when, when he says, I'm going to pray for him? I mean, he could have been sick and like, I don't want to hear this prayer. But he's like, whatever, dad, just pray. And, and I said, I want you to know something, son. I said, the Bible says that when we pray to God, we don't pray to someone who's unsympathetic, but that understands us, gets us. And I said, just Jesus took on a human body. While the Bible doesn't say he had a stomach ache, I got to believe he did at one point in time. But I know this, he knew what physical pain was like. And I said, so when we pray and ask Jesus to help us in our time of need, it's not that he doesn't get it or understand, but he knows exactly what we're going through in those moments. And one of the things that I want you to never forget as you cry out to the Lord is don't act as if he doesn't know what's going on in your life. One, he knows it because he's omniscient and he knows everything, right? But he also knows it experientially. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to feel alone. He knows what it's like to want to be left alone. All of these different things that we go through, Jesus looks and says, I get it. I identify with you. And Luke is pointing out, Jesus was exhausted and he went to sleep. Now look at what happens here. 
Then, so they're in a boat. Now, now uh, if you would read Mark's account, it's not just one boat going across. It's multiple vessels. And so Luke's going to say there was a group of disciples with him. So there's a group of them in boats. These would not have been tiny boats, but they would not have been large boats either. They could have probably held somewhere between 8 to 12 men. And so you just think about this. It was a fishing vessel, uh, able to hold some weight, but it's not like some big yacht or luxury cruiser that's, that's going across the water here. And it says, Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and they were in danger. So this little moment gets very serious in a short period of time. Now on the Sea of Galilee, it has been researched a lot by meteorologists and and, and scientists because of the location of this lake. It is subject to very intense and very quick storms that come up. Because of the way it, where it sits as far as its uh, depth, where it sits because of the mountains around it, because of the atmosphere, it is very easy when fronts move in for there to be cold masses of air that quickly hit warm masses of air. Masses of air. And because we live in Oklahoma, we know what happens when a cold mass of air hits a warm mass of air, right? Storms develop. I don't have to spend a lot of time to you in this audience explaining the severity of storms and weather. If we were to look across the globe, we see that they come in a variety of forms. Ever since sin entered the world and caused all of creation to be in a sense of turmoil, there has been catastrophic events, and some of them happen in the forms of weather. So if you live on the coast, what do you get? Hurricanes, right? If you live near an ocean in places, you can get tsunamis. If you live in Oklahoma, what do we get? Tornadoes. Matter of fact, my wife and I were in Hawaii. We were rented a, got an Uber, and we were driving over to Pearl Harbor. And the guy that was talking to us had been a native of Hawaii pretty much most of his life. And he said, where are you from? We said, we're from Oklahoma. And the first thing that he said was, oh, tornadoes. And I said, yep, you're right. He's like, have you ever seen a tornado? I said, I've seen many of a tornado. I said, I live in El Reno. We're one of the biggest ones as, as far as magnitude has come. You know where we live or we've experienced historically uh, the danger that that weather can cause. And one of the things that would happen out on these open seas is when those masses of air would hit with severe storms that would break out right there, which is why this area has been studied so much. Now, one of the things that you need to understand about this crew that Jesus is running with is they are men who are used to the sea. They have grown up in this area their entire life, and they know what weather is. They know what the elements around it look like. They know the severity of it. And they have been caught before, no doubt, out on the middle of the water when a storm brewed up. But this one came with such quickness and intensity, the Bible tells us that they were terrified. They were afraid. They had not really seen anything quite like this. And what we're going to see in a moment happens is they're going to reach a point where they're thinking, we're going to die out here. Now, I want you to think back in your life, having most of us been from this area, to when was a moment that you were really afraid? I mean, and, and not just like, you know, you thought something bad could happen, but you found yourself caught in one of those moments when maybe it was weather-related or something else happened, and you just realized, oh no, I'm in the middle of trouble, and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. While I have experienced weather in a variety of ways, one of the times that I think it probably scared me the most, when I was about seven or eight years old, and we were in church on a Wednesday night, and back in that day, of course, we didn't have all of the technology that we have. We didn't have an app on our smartphone that warned us. You had to be watching constantly. And because we didn't have 
that type of technology, they knew that weather might be coming, but it could happen to us a lot quicker than, than what it happens to us currently in, in, in our day and time today. And I remember being in church on a Wednesday evening when all of a sudden the sirens in town began to blow. And we were actually in the kids' wing of our church, which was outside. And as we heard those sirens, all of a sudden, here comes adults, and they're grabbing us, and they're, they're bringing us all together, and they're taking us down to the old fellowship hall of the building because that's going to be the safest place. And kids are crying, and I can remember grabbing the hand of another little girl in my Wednesday night class, and we're running across. And it was probably the time in my life that I was the most afraid of weather that was coming in. And you, and you think about that, right? You think about that moment in your life when you're like, this is happening and we've got no control over it. The only thing that we can do is run and hide. But guess what? If you're in the middle of the water when this happens, you're in real trouble. I can remember as a kid being out on the lake, Fort Cobb Lake, which wasn't far from where I grew up, and all of a sudden you'd see a storm look like it was coming up, and all of a sudden, guess what all the boats did? They tried to find a way to get out of there. Why? Because the last place you wanted to be was in a boat in the middle of the storm where there's no security, no place to hide, no shelter, and this is the situation that these men have found themselves in. And these sea-bearing men, right, they've been out there. This is a deadliest catch situation for them, all right? You ever watch that show, Deadliest Catch, where they're out there in the water and all of a sudden storms can come up and begin to blow? This is what they're feeling. Now look at what happens here. They being swamped and were in danger, they came and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Now we read this right. Storm blowing, blowing, they're being swamped by waves. The boat's got to be rocking. It's not like Jesus is tucked away in some little special place. He's out there with them, but they're having to wake him up. Now, I don't care how tired of an old boy you are. Whenever you're in the middle of something like that, you don't normally sleep. So, so either Jesus is just like so exhausted he's unconscious, which I don't think is the case, but something's going on that they're having to say, Master, Master. They're, they're waking him up saying, we're about to die. Don't you get it? Don't you see what's happening around here? Now we're going to see in a moment why I think this is relevant. But Jesus is woke up. Now look at what happens here. Then he got up. So, so just think about this, right? I mean, we've heard this story so many times. Where we're like, yeah, we know what's going to happen. But I want you to think about being in the middle of this story. You think you're going to die. Your leader whom you're following, because he's the one that wanted to go across to the other side, is asleep, and you're having to wake him up, and here's what he does. He just gets up, no sign of him saying, like, what's happening, no rubbing the sleep out of his eye, no saying what's going on, no seeing the things and going, oh no, we're in trouble. This is what he does. He wakes up, he rebukes the wind and the raging seas, look at this, so they ceased and there was calm. Now, Mark says it like this. He says that Jesus said two sentences, and here's what Mark records in Mark 4.39. He said, silence, period, be still, period. Now, I know I'm not Jesus, but just, just play along with me for this in a moment. We're sitting here on a day like today, and all of a sudden a storm begins to blow up. I mean, it's hailing, it's raining, the winds are swirling, and you're wanting to leave, but I won't quit preaching. And you're like, bro, it's, it's, it's happening. And I just act like it's not even happening. All right? We're just going. 
And finally, one of you gets the energy and the, the braveness to say, hey, preacher, stop preaching. We're about to die. I mean, shingles are starting to fly off. I mean, things are beginning to shake. And if I just said, peace be still, you would look at me like I'm the biggest lunatic in the world. I mean, if, if that's all I did, like I just stopped preaching for a moment and that was just my response. Now you're like, you're not Jesus. I get that, but, but they're terrified, right? They don't know that Jesus is going to do this either. And they have to be thinking, what? That, that, that's your response? You just wake up and say, peace, be still. But, but before they can even hardly get that thought out, guess what? The Bible says it's completely calm. Just stops. And not just like it's dark and the wind quit blowing, like it's just gone, right? I mean, it's just all of a sudden went from a terrible storm to a beautiful spring day outside. And now all of a sudden something is happening. Now we're going to get to that here in just a moment, but here's what I want us to understand. Jesus is indeed the Lord of the storm, right? Now I think we need to see this in a couple of ways. First of all, the authority to be able to stop weather means clearly that he's no ordinary man. The ability to, on his own, wake up without God saying, hey, I'm going to give you the authority and power to do this, but just on his own stands up and says, peace, be still, and instantly is calm, is perplexing to anyone out there who has a bit of a brain. Here's why. Because even with all of our technology today, which is amazing, right? That pretty much if you watched any one of our local news channels, and if they said tomorrow afternoon has a high potential for severe weather, you know what every one of you are going to do? You're going to be on guard tomorrow. Now, if they said tomorrow you're going to get six inches of snow, everybody's like, whatever. You're wearing shorts. You don't believe it till all of a sudden snow's on the ground. But if they say there's going to be severe weather, every one of us are making preparations. Matter of fact, if they said tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock, we think that there's a real threat and chance for severe weather, how many of you would not send your kids to school tomorrow because you say, you know what, they're pretty good at this, and the last thing that I want to have happen is for my kids to be, be caught there. How many of you do not have an app on your phone that alerts you, right? Uh, you have it, and it drives you crazy because sometimes in the middle of the night, it'll wake you up to tell you that there's lightning in your area. And you're like, it's not even raining. I don't care. But, but when you do want to have it on is in the middle of storm season. Why? Because we have come so far in our technology to be able to say, listen, you need to get cover right now. You need to hide. You need to find a place for shelter because if you don't, you will die. That's amazing technology that we have. Praise God for it. But you know what we've never been able to create, nor will we, is the ability to stop it. We can tell you it's coming. We can tell you how to be safe. We can tell you what to do. We can tell you where not to be. But here's what we can't do is say, don't worry, tomorrow it's going to come, but we're going to stop it. And guess what? One man stands up in the middle of a boat, says three words, peace, be still, and instantly it stops. You want to know why? Because he is not just a man who understands us and is tired. He is God in heaven who came to earth and has authority. An authority so great that he can speak to the creation and tell it to stop. And it just stops. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus was asleep on this boat. I think he knew exactly what was going to happen. You might say, well, how do you think he knew that? Did Jesus not know where fish were going to be in the middle of a lake? Same sea? 
Did he not have the ability to tell them where to go and even maybe cause those fish to be in that moment? Because if you remember, Peter said, we fished here all night and we haven't caught anything. And Jesus said, just throw it out again. And guess what? There it is. Did Jesus not in a gospel tell Peter, go catch that fish and you're going to get what you need to pay the temple tax? And he catches a fish and there's a coin in its mouth. Clearly, he is the Lord over creation. The apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things exist exist and are held together. John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but another thing that it says is that everything exists through Him. This is who Jesus is. He is God in human form, and He has complete authority over the creation. You want to know why? Because He's not just a created being, He is the Creator. See the difference. You see, there is a lot of different religions out there that do not deny Jesus, don't deny that He's a good man, don't deny that He did a lot of good things and that you should probably listen to the majority of His teachings. But you want to know one of the things that separates Christianity from the rest of those religions is we don't just believe Jesus was some good created man. We believe that He was God who took on human form, that the Creator came to dwell among us. And He's proving this, right? He's proving it by saying there's no disease that sin has caused that I can't make better. Even death that sin has caused, I can bring back to life. These evil spirits who want to sentence you to death like they're going to be sentenced to death, I can rebuke them and they're going to listen to me. This weather that's a result because of the fall of man, because guess what? There weren't tornadoes in the Garden of Eden. He says, I can calm those. And so here's what we're seeing, that Jesus isn't just the Lord of the storm, but He is the Lord of the calm as well. He's the one who is in control of all of the elements that are going on and uses them. We, we sung this this morning, right? Who has told every lightning bolt where it should go? Good question, isn't it? I mean, is it just random, chaotic masses of electricity in the air that are just happening randomly? Or is there a sovereign God in heaven who has ordained all things and is telling every part of creation where it can exist, how it can exist, where it should go? And Jesus says, peace, be still. But He has some other words that He wants to say. So they ceased and there was calm. Verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? Mark records that Jesus says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now we got the quick answer to the first question, right? Why are you so afraid? Did you not see the storm? Real reason to be afraid, right? I mean, I would say you're a little bit ignorant if all of a sudden a tornado blows up. And some, of us, some of you are like this, and so I'm going to rain on your parade a little bit. But if you go stand out in a pair of cowboy boots in your boxers and just watch it, when it's coming for your house, that's not macho, that's not cool, that's stupid. I'm just going just to say it to you right now, all right? I mean, some of you, I get it, you want to see it and you like it, and, I, and I'm like you, like I'm not getting in that hole until I've got to get in the hole, but let me just tell you this, when it says time to get in the hole, I'm not just going to stand out there in my boxers and cowboy boots and act like bring it, I, I want to see it, I'm going to be smart, and if you get sucked up and blown away for that, that's on you, not on God, all right? And so you do that, you get what you want. Some of you are even crazier, right? You go get in cars and chase it around. And some of you are like, yeah, I'm a storm chaser. No, you're not. 
unless you have one of those cars and have been employed to be a storm chaser, you're not a storm chaser. Just, just want to throw that out there to you. And if something happens to you in the middle of that, guess what? That's on you. It's your fault. So, so when they say, why are you afraid? They've got good reason. Jesus, the storm. That storm has the power to destroy us, but then he follows it up with a question that stings a little bit, but is harder to answer. Why do you still have no faith? Now, why is he asking that? Because of everything they've seen Jesus do, he's saying, do you still struggle to believe that I'm not in control of this? I'm in control of life and death. I'm in control of sickness. I'm in control of the demonic evil spirits that are waging war against you. Basically, he's saying, what is it going to take for you to believe? Now, remember I told you that Luke speaks categorically. Think about what else has happened in the last couple of chapters here in 7 and 8. The first one was there was a Roman centurion, Gentile, who says, Jesus, I need your help, but you don't have to come to my house because I know what it means to have authority. And I know that when I tell my soldiers to do something, I don't have to be there. They're going to do it. Why? Because I have authority. And Jesus looks and says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. This guy gets it. He understands that I have authority, that I don't even have to be there. And guess what? That very moment as Jesus is accommodating him because of his faith, his, his servant was healed because he believed. Well, what else happened? There's a story of an outcast of society, right? This woman of the city who we believe is a prostitute because the Pharisee said, man, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her anywhere near him, much less touch him. And as she anointed Jesus' feet with her perfume and her hair and washed it, he looks at him and basically tells a story about someone who's been forgiven much. And, and, and Jesus looks and says, you didn't offer me anything to wash myself with. Yet this woman has washed my feet with her tears. She's anointed me with perfume. And he says, go, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because of your faith. And so Jesus has brought out two examples that would have been contrary to Jewish culture, people who would believe. A Gentile who is a Roman, a societal outcast who is a prostitute. Yet Jesus is saying, but they get it. They believe. They know who I am. Now, guys, why do you still struggle to believe who I am? Now, I want to go back to something I said a moment ago. I think Jesus knew the storm was coming. I think there's a reason why he was in peace, though, because he knew what he was going to do. So here's a question that I ask, right? Jesus knew a storm was going to come. He's able to sleep through it. Why not just tell the storm before it gets there to go and they can just sail across peacefully? Wouldn't that have been easier? I mean, wouldn't you prefer Jesus to do that for you, right? He knows a problem's going to come. He's going to fix it anyway, so why not just stop the problem before it comes? That way you don't have to go through all the fear and the anxiety and all of that other stuff. Let me tell you why I believe Jesus knew the storm was going to come, but allowed it to come. Not because he wanted to punish them, but because he wanted to have a moment to increase their faith. Because he wanted to have a moment, because here's their response, right? Who is this man? Even the winds and the seas obey him. Isn't it interesting that their fear was replaced by fear? They were terrified of the storm. Now they're terrified of something greater. 
Now, the word terrified there is the word we would use for a healthy fear. So they went from having an unhealthy fear, fear of circumstances, death, what was about to happen. But now they're terrified in a different way. Their eyes are open. They're amazed, right? They're astonished. They're they're, they're fearful because who is this guy in a boat with us that speaks and even a storm listens to what he says? Now, here's where I want us to parallel this with us in our life, right? We all go through proverbial storms. Some of you are going through one right now. I've heard people say things like this, and I think there's some truth to it. You're either about to go into a storm, you're in a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. And I think, without being pessimistic, that's a pretty good picture of the fallen world in which we live in, right? There are moments in this life when you're in the middle of it. There are moments in this life when you're just coming out of that difficult moment. There are miracles or days in this life when you're just preparing to go into that season. Why? If he has authority over storms, why let them come? To increase our faith. How many times in our life do we have that moment where we say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief? God, I know it's true, but I struggle to believe that it's true. And how Jesus will often answer for our good and by grace is to say, I'm going to give you situations by which your faith is going to be increased. It's going to grow and it's going to be hard, but it's the only way that you grow. I find it very interesting that in those moments of life where we have those drastic moments where God opens our eyes and says, all right, you want to follow me, follow me. That they're normally not followed by big seasons of pleasantry, but often are followed by seasons of difficulty. And you might say, and that's where many of us just throw in the towel and we quit. We're like, see, it doesn't matter what I do. And the answer is, oh, yes, it does. But you said you wanted to grow. And God says, if you want to grow, then let's grow. But you're not going to do it by laying on your back. You're not going to do it by everything being okay. You want your faith to be increased? Well, let's walk through some difficult moments where your faith can be increased. Why? Because in order for your faith to increase, you've got to learn to trust me. And you don't trust me when it's easy. You know who you trust when things are easy? You. You know who you follow when things are easy? Most of the story, let's be honest, it's us, right? Because when it's easy, we think to ourselves, well, God, I really don't need you. Let's put this on cruise control. I'll handle it. Which is famous last words for everybody who made a wreck of everything, right? Because what we have to have is moments where God says, I'm Lord of the storm. And because I'm Lord of the storm, I'm going to let you experience for a moment. I'm not going to let it destroy you. I'm not going to let it kill you. But I'm going to let it shape you. And when it's all said and done, guess what? You're going to have a deeper level of faith Not because I just took the storm away, but because I was Lord of the storm in your life. And once I delivered you, you get to taste and see that I'm also the Lord of the calm as well. He's Lord of both, right? But you want to know what? We appreciate the calm far more after a storm. You ever notice that? I mean, we could have a string of 10 days of great weather that we're just oblivious to. We're just living it up. A storm comes and that next day is calm. Man, are we not thankful for that? Thankful for the release of the rain. Thankful for the release of the winds. All of those things. Why? Because there's something about calm after a storm that causes us to really appreciate what it means to have calmness in our life.
So here's what I hope happens. That you and I who are intent and in saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, mean that to the extent that we says, wherever you lead, I'll go. And Jesus, we trust that you're in control. You have authority. And that means that because you have authority, sometimes you very well might lead me into places that are uncomfortable for me. You very well might even lead me in places where I fear for my very life. But it's not to destroy me. It's to increase my faith, to increase my dependence on you, and replace my fear of circumstances in life and all the things that this world can throw at me with a better fear where, Jesus, I look at you and tremble because I ask myself, who is this person, this man, that even the winds and seas obey him? Now, now, that was their question. Let me tell you what the answer is in case you didn't get it. The answer is he's not just some ordinary man. He's God incarnate who came to die for you and for me. A book that has shaped my life is an older book. When I say older, for some of you in the room, it won't seem that old. For some of you in the room, it'll seem ancient. I think it was probably written in the 70s, uh, so that'll just date you one way or the other, and I won't say where you fall on that scale, but it was written by J.I. Packer, and the book's simply called Knowing God. And it shaped my life because as I had this hunger and desire in my life to know God, he, he, he begins it by posing a very interesting but simple question, like, why do you want to know God? And I think that's a great question, right? I mean, in this spiritual journey, why is it that you really want to know Him? Is it for information? Is it for facts? Is it to disprove? Is it just to, to, to learn because you always want to learn? Or is it because you want to truly know and experience the God of creation? Well, as he goes through this book, he begins to talk about the characteristics and the attributes of God and why they're important. If we're really going to know Him, we need to know these things. But one of the things that he stuck out to me that said, he says, really, the greatest thing that you and I need to come to grips with is the Incarnation. He's like, this is the miracle of miracles that we need to be able to embrace for us to understand all the rest of miracles. And here's what he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, if you can grasp by faith the reality of the Incarnation, then everything else in the Bible makes sense. If you truly believe that Jesus was indeed God incarnate, who came, was born of a virgin, but in that, that union was fully God and fully man, not 50-50, not some other, another hybrid, but indeed was fully humanity and fully God, then guess what? It makes sense of everything else. Why was He able to walk on water? Because He was God, the Lord of creation. Why was He able to stop a storm? Because He's God. How was He able to endure temptation and not sin? Because He was, in God, was God. I mean, in, in just everything else you read in the Bible, like, He's like, that's, that's the chief miracle that you need to grasp. Because if you can grasp that, how is it that He went to the cross and came back to life? Because He was God. How is it that He's going to rule and reign? Because He was God. And I will tell you this, our theology has gotten weak because oftentimes we have... And I never want to take away from the humanity of Jesus, but we have shrunk Jesus to look like us. He identifies with us. He understands us because He was indeed fully human. But guess what? He was not just some good man that walked the face of the earth. He was God in human form. Let me tell you what that demands. Worship. It demands respect. And it means that we don't diminish him and treat him as just he, he's some other created being. You know, there was a season where you would see things like Jesus is my homeboy things. And 
And Jesus, I mean, and I'm not joking. There was like, Jesus is my homeboy underwear. And I, and I don't want to be a prude. But there's a part of me that looks and says, that, that's not who he is, just some symbolic picture to put on your underwear. He's more than that. He was a man, don't get me wrong, but he was the perfect man, the Son of God who came to take away our sins. And I think he's owed more allegiance and respect to that. I don't think it's funny to be trivial with him. I don't think it's cute nor clever to make light of him and who he was and what he did. Because he is the Lord of all creation by which the Bible makes very clear that every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it demands that we operate in fear of him. Now, not cower and run, right? Because we don't see that side of Jesus at all. There were only a few moments where he acted in such a way that it caused people to run and hide. But one of the things that we do see in his deity as he exp- expressed himself, and we're going to see this unfold as I think Mark is going to, or excuse me, Luke is going to shift a little bit of theme here. He's gone from showing faith, but he's also going to begin to show fear in the lives of people as they see the deity of Jesus. Because as we look at this week, they're like, who is this guy? They weren't like high five and slapping him, like giving him knuckles, patting him on the back. Jesus, we knew you can do it. They're all just sitting in the back of the boat like, who who tells a storm to stop and it stops? I mean, they're in awe, right? And one of the things I think that we've lost in our churches today, if I'm being honest, is awe. I think we sit here so accustomed and so used to hearing these stories and this rhetoric over and over again, and we've sung these songs so many times over and over again that we fail to grasp the depth of what it's telling us. It should create awe in us. And what we're going to see unfold in the next couple of uh, stories that we look at in Scripture is that other people, when they saw what Jesus did, were afraid that that after he cast out a demon next week, they're going to say, will you leave our town, please? You would think they'd be embracing him. They're like, we don't know what to do with the guy who can cast out a legion of demons. Why? It creates awe, fear in the life of people because he's worthy of our worship. I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. I think there's so much application in this story. I think there's application in moments where we allow our circumstances to be bigger than our God. And I think that's a battle that we all face regularly because I think day in and day out we can identify when we get news or see things that are troubling to us that in that moment they seem so big. And I think sometimes Jesus looks at us and says, why do you still not believe? And I think the answer for that is sometimes we, we forget of all that he's done, right? We look back on David and he says, I'm not afraid to stand against the Philistine. Why? Because God delivered me from a lion and a bear. He can deliver me from him. He pulled back on the ways that God had been faithful to him before. And sometimes we just forget of how faithful God has been to us. And so right now, maybe you're in one of those moments in life where you're just saying, God, I'm struggling to believe. I've got some news. I've got some things going on. And it just seems bigger than what I'm able to handle. And he looks and says, oh, where is your faith? Not being condescending, not being humorous or hard on you, but asking you a legitimate question. Why do you still struggle to believe? And we never 
think to stop and say, maybe the very reason he's allowing me to go through this is because my faith is weak and this is going to be the thing that strengthens my faith. Now, rarely in the middle of the storm do we stop and give thanks, although I think we probably should. But normally on the other end of it, we look back and we say, man, that was hard and I don't know that I want to do it again. But God, I know you now in ways that I would have never known you before. And he says, that's the grace of the storm that I just took you through. Some of us, let's be honest, we've lost our awe of God a little bit. And we've heard these stories so many times that we just know them before I even preach them, right? I know what he's going to do. He's going to walk on water. Isn't that cool? But we fail to understand who is it that has the authority to defy the physics of nature and walk on water? It's God. And we sing about Jesus and we sing to Jesus and we talk about Jesus, but maybe we become very flippant and casual in an unhealthy way that we've diminished the authority, respect, glory, honor, and praise that's due to the name of Jesus. And maybe this morning is a morning that you stand up and scream at the top of your lungs as you sing and praise and thanksgiving. And you know what? That's okay. Or maybe it's just a moment that you sit and reflect on all that God is and all that He's done and say, what kind of God is it that would work in a life like mine? And you recount all the faithfulness of God and all the ways that He's moved and what He's doing in your life right now. And you just pause and give Him the praise that's due His name. Because you say, you know what? This is no ordinary man. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's worthy of my allegiance and my respect. Father in heaven, have your way in us today. Open our eyes that we might see, understand, increase our faith. Help us to be thankful even in those difficult times knowing that you're not bringing storms our way to crush us or kill us, but God, to grow us and strengthen us and mature us. So Father, today, would you help us to be people who are in awe of you, who love you, who desire you, and are faithful to you in the way that you've been faithful to us. Thank you, Jesus, for conquering sin and death in our place, that we might have life in you and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We've got people up front. If you want to step forward, if you want to come kneel at the altar, if you want to visit with someone at the back, that's available to you. If you want to stand and sing, now's the time for you to do that. If you want to sit, that's free as well. But just be obedient as the Lord leads you this morning.